Welcome to the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jackie Forsyth, and also co-founder of the network. The purpose of the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network is to grow, strengthen, and promote research on women in sport and exercise with the ultimate goal of optimizing women's athletic success and their participation. With these podcasts, we wish to bring you information from leading academics who are researching about women in sport and exercise and provide you with advice and support for the exercising female. Please remember our disclaimer that the opinions, content and recommendations contained within our podcast are for general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, treatment or diagnosis. Dr. Hanya Pielihati is a Principal Lecturer at the University of Lincoln and runs the BA in Sports Business Management. Hanya's research specialism is around girls and women's football, identities, gender and family relationships. The importance and platforming of voice is prioritised through both Hanya's teaching and research. It is her own 20 plus year football career that provided the foundation for her love of sport and also an understanding of negotiating culturally male-dominated spaces. In this podcast, I chat with Hanya about her research in which she used critical ethnographic exploration to identify and describe player identities among female footballers. So first of all, I thought we could, because I don't know that much about your research area, I feel a little bit stupid that I don't know some of these terms. But I noticed that you've used critical ethnographic exploration and you said that this was because you have been or you still are. Is that right? You still are a footballer? Not anymore. Not anymore. Right. But um, because of your past footballing history, you get good access to players quite easily and therefore you can interact with them in their real life environment. So could you just make maybe explain a little bit more about this and what it is and what the advantages and disadvantages of that kind of research approach is. Yeah, no problem. So I I started playing football when I was nine years old and that was at a time when there was no other real females playing. I was the first girl on the boys football team at primary school and I remember in year seven at secondary school having my parents had to write a um, approval note that I was allowed to play with the after school year seven into school tournament so it was a very different era of playing um, and because of that I you know I've been playing um, on and off uh, for 22 years I think it was and I over this time played for different levels uh, different standards never a professional I always paid to play um, but professional in every other setting as in you know, played football every single weekend for 20 years, trained two, three times a week for 22 years, um, but still paid to play. And I think this really, um, it really changed how I saw and viewed society and culture in general and looked at these male dominated spaces. And so I brought that into my own uh, research eventually. And in terms of critical ethnography, that this was um, it's basically an extension of classical or traditional ethnography, which is looking at um, subcultures and how they operate um, as being part uh, partly immersed within them. Um, so my research was um, I was a volunteer coach um, across two different sites. 
um, a school site, secondary school site and a football academy site. So at the football academy, um, I work with players from the under nine age group through to the under 17 and at the school site, the under 13 and under 15 group. And as part of this, I um, I was a volunteer coach, so I joined in in sessions, um, observe, uh, be there, and 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 took part. Um, but as any ethnography goes, I always um, I kind of flitted between the insider outsider uh, continuum in terms of uh, in in terms of uh, how much. I could be involved with it. So, for example, with the under nines, they would shout me, they'd want me to play with them, they would get really excited. Um, but the under 17s, it was very serious. They were training. So I couldn't really just get involved, you know, as such. Um, so I was more there as an observer. So it really flitter between. The idea of critical came in because my research is underlined by uh, critical feminism. So this notion of uh, the, the football space, the football culture is one which is uh, male dominated still to this day and one which uh, I feel there needs to be a platform for girls and women to have their voice heard. And so the critical side was through the techniques I use, so uh, focus groups, um, conversational interviews, I was using um, and wanted to really hear and listen to the, the girls and women's voices. And, and use them to platform what they were telling me, what was happening in the world of football. And the critical edge was being able to use ethnography as a platform to enable uh, activism in a way, to enable the voices of those who don't normally be heard um, be put on a different platform. And so that's where the critical ethnography came from. And um, I've been able to do that with a few papers that are currently being reviewed, which is really putting a, a realistic spin on um, yes, we're seeing so much increase in girls and women playing football, but not necessarily a cultural shift in girls and women's appropriateness to football. So there's a real imbalance there in, in terms of what my own opinion is on the, on the situation. Right. So have you got a different opinion then to what, to what you've researched? Is that what you're trying to say there? Well, it's just um, there's a lot covered in the press um, and a lot of good news stories, which is fantastic about the uh, the the increase and in, in statistical rise in girls and women who play football and participate and engage in the sport. However, these these players still have to negotiate a myriad of um, bullying, teasing, uh, having to go the extra mile as we've seen in centuries of research about women in sport going beyond the norm to succeed and so the statistical picture doesn't necessarily reflect cultural change to the level we hope yeah i mean i've done a, you know you've talked about going that extra mile um and i've done a little bit of research on this and um interviewing women and girls about their careers within sport and exercise and they were also saying that they have to prove themselves in a male dominant environment yeah. Yeah. Um, which is you know when you think about it why should you have to prove themselves mm -hmm. and that maybe instead you set a different target for females so that they you know even physiologically I'm sure I read this when I was looking at your research that physiologically there might be a different um, target to aim at for females compared to males so that they shouldn't be then comparing themselves at males they should be reaching the targets that they're you know um 
being able to reach does that make sense yes I understand what you you mean about um changing or reflecting the actuality of the sport I suppose my research isn't physiological so I wouldn't be able to comment on that um but uh, mine's about kind of a, a, a culture a hidden history or a, a hidden culture of girls and women who have actually been playing football for hundreds of years um but the sport being banned from the sport for 50 years by the FA you know we're still recovering from very structural uh, attempts and in some sense achievement in delaying and, and stopping women engaging with football so it is still seen by the players who play as male dominated and because of that there is still that as you said that need to prove themselves first that they can play because on first glance you're a female and the presumption is you can't play as well as males and and that has to change and I haven't yet seen anything that tackles that fundamentally um that you know that for me is it needs to have some change that's not just about putting on more opportunities for girls to play because it's not about them participating they are participating it's about um changing the culture for every person not just females and girls um and women sorry but for everyone to to understand that actually it's a sport for all and the game isn't different and it's not played on a smaller pitch and the goals aren't smaller. It is the same sport, maybe played in different ways, but actually it still needs to be given the respect that it that it deserves. So the cultural shift for me is way behind the statistical uh, picture which we are presented with. And, and so what so clearly then the FA, for instance, are not, uh, they're making things like you say, they're putting on extra events and they're trying to make the game more attractive to females. But you say there needs to be this cultural shift. What do you, what could, what in an ideal world, if you were able to change things, what could you do in order to make that change? Well, I just think it comes from um, education at the, you know, primary school age of um, girls and boys being educated that sport is for all um, there are the, the barriers in place uh, are removed in terms of the the confidence that are instilled in our children uh, the accessibility the belief fundamentally starts somewhere that football is for boys and not for girls now that is changing however even if the players in my study know that wasn't right, but they still reflected upon it and they still use the terms tomboy and girly girl, even if they themselves didn't agree with them, they mm. still use them as parameters to kind of judge their own gender by. Now, mm. these are really old traditional um, semantics, but they're still being used to frame and uh, constrain uh, girls and women today even if they don't themselves realize it so there's a lot of archaic terms and phrases and practices that are still being being used and actually there are a lot of great PE teachers out there a lot of great educators that are doing everything but actually systemic change comes from individual change change at family level change at institutional level at all platforms so it's a really difficult one to address so you mentioned those semantics and talking about girly girls and tomboys are you saying i mean are you saying that that's 
wrong, you almost have to get rid of that. Or are you OK with those terms being used um, within a football setting, for instance? I don't think they're particularly helpful. I think they are acknowledged and they're used because most people have an understanding of what they mean. I think um, players understand what they mean and they try and then fit their more realistic understanding of self around them, but they don't fit. Uh, I think they have they have a purpose just because society likes to give things labels. So they have mm. a per they they give a label to a girl who plays football. She's a tomboy. That to me is not a helpful label because actually you are therefore saying any other type of girl doesn't play football. So actually, mm. you know, the, the and that's the same for boys as well who are given very unhelpful labels. And these are things that stick and can actually cause uh, can be quite damaging for for children. So it's just about changing the way gender and sport and its relationship is used culturally and with language and just kind of not even have a tomboy thing but just have well there's girls who just love football and they also love netball and they also love you know going out with their friends and that's just you know the a new way of not even new but just a one way of being a self or an identity so I think language can be restrictive to to you know to progress as well. So do you think this these terms are unique to football or are there other sports where, I mean, obviously there will be other sports because there are various male dominated sports, but do you think this is across all sports that, that these, these terminologies and these um, uh, identities are expressed? I think it's across all society, so therefore it is linked to all sports. Unfortunately, you know, we have activities that are traditionally perceived as uh, ultra feminine or ultra masculine. And I mean, several other authors have written loads about the terms that are difficult and, and perplexing. Um, but, you know, traditionally things like gymnastics and dance and um those kind of uh, activities are seen to be very ultra feminine and then rugby football you know linked to masculinities and the problem with that is when then you've got girls and women having to change then having to prove themselves as we said because they don't seem to have a natural fit with those things that are previously um, subscribed by others or by society so I think it is a society issue. Does that mean then if they don't fit the ideal, are they more likely to drop out? That's tricky for me to say, because obviously my research is all with footballers who are playing. I mm. haven't done research with those girls who did drop out based on any of that. But all I can say is that the, the girls and women who are, I um, researched or were part of my research absolutely love football they love it through and through they love everything about it and it's almost like they see the extra stuff the potential teasing or the having to prove yourself first as just part of it mm. as as though it's just a standard thing that happens when you play football so it's almost become accepted by the players which in itself can be problematic because then there is no change 
because if it's accepted by those players, then they're not seeing a reason to change it. They just get on with it. But do they change who they are, their identity to fit into the subculture? So do they become more tomboys just because they're within that environment? Is that what kind of you're saying as well? That's a really good question. My research, um, so I did some research around what I call the football self. Um, and I talked about selves moving between a, a contingent self and a salient self. Oh, yeah. yes. So I found that um, players with salient cells were the ones that committed 100% to this, a time-limited, what seemed like a fixed football identity, uh, whereas other players were more contingent. So football was one of the many things that they would do. It wasn't the right. only thing they did. And players could fluidly move from one to the other and all stages in between as part of a continuum. And do you think it's it's more healthy then to be more of a contingent self to have various identities because I've read somewhere about that about having you know if you just identify you can become more anxious maybe there's more psychological problems <laughs> that you know you identify yourself as a footballer and then as something else something else that maybe that's more healthy for um making for mental health and well-being have you found that at all I think it's uh, that's a really really interesting point and what emerged from my research was actually th those with a salient self found it very difficult to see life beyond football, mm. whether that was through retirement or injury and almost an anxiety around how their lives might change or where they would go. And, you know, they would have to reassess and reevaluate that. But for others, it was kind of a natural shift. So actually, they were had salient football selves and then they knew when they would go to university or get a job or start a family that they wanted to change. And so actually they then slid to a, a, okay. a contingent self and might play football uh, more infrequently. And it was just there in the background. So I think it depends a lot on the individual as well as, as the circumstance and the support around but I do think it, it there it, there does need to be more structural support around those with salient cells in whatever sport of whatever gender because actually it's important so yeah in that case I, I do some coaching I'm a, a junior rowing coach I do this voluntary voluntarily and I'm sure lots of people who are listening in might do some coaching or work with younger people in that case would you advise then to have you know almost to have a, a session not just training sessions but a session about these kind of issues so that you can at least talk about them and say how you feel is that an important part of the coach's role yeah definitely I think um, a coach well a coach has to be many different things to many different players it's a really taxing mm. role um, but actually somewhere some signposting or something to say look we understand and they'll know the players that the sport means above and beyond to they'll know perhaps the ones that might need a bit more support just to put something on and it's not to say that those that had salient cells were the better players or or anything mm. like that it was just this personal embeddedness if you like of the sport into their lives uh, that seemed to have have um yeah this emotional connection so yeah something around coach education would be really super useful because I don't 
I might be wrong, but I don't know if it's it's given as much attention as it deserves by perhaps the um, people in and around the area. Mm-hmm. And also, if somebody new comes into the football team, did you find that they were chaining, changing their persona or changing their the way they behaved or their attitude in order to, to fit in? Or, or was it because they were like that? I'm always interested in that. Are people like that anyway and therefore attracted to the group? Or do they come to the group and therefore change in order to fit in? I think I had very different situations depending on which site I was on. So the school site, obviously school football teams are more accommodating of different abilities, different age levels um, and people who kind of uh, put football in different place in their life. So you had the, a real mixture of salient and Um, contingent football selves at the school setting and I think a lot of them were just themselves they were just whoever they were they went to school after school training and then did football and they enjoyed it and it was a social activity and they just knew each other as friends anyway and whereas at the academy they it was a um, self-selected you know they had to go to trials to get in so they were very much thought of as the footballer anyway and so mm. what I was witnessing and observing was was this just understanding of self. But there were a lot. There was a plethora of, of ways of being girl at at, in, at these football places. You know, there wasn't just one way. It wasn't just, you know, full of tomboys at every age group. It wasn't like that. Um, and there were girls, obviously, who would identify more strongly with that characteristic. But then others who were just you know uh, completely different to that and they all just gelled and just had that they were united by their love of football um right you know that was what united them not their way of performing gender okay yes that's interesting because I think when you came to our conference last year you talked about the apologetic turn and was that about the idea that um if you were say feminine have feminine qualities whatever that is uh, within football that you um you weren't going to apologize for that you were just going to be like that yeah exactly thank you for that um basically uh, i was uh, i built upon furbridge's uh, notion of the apology the apologetic and with her study of women who played uh, professional ice hockey she was uh, saying that actually the women in kind of press conferences and outside of the sport were apologetic about their talent um and their abilities to try and downplay that Whereas I found the footballers in my study were not apologetic. You know, they there was a change in that. They were who they were and they were really proud of that. And they wanted to um, ensure that who they were was being displayed and, and have that that notion. However, obviously, there are differences with my study and that of professional ice hockey women. Um, these players were not uh, only a, a few in my family group were professional players, but the majority were in these, you know, club settings or school mm. settings. But there was a, a change, I would say, in how, uh, you know, the, 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 how proud they were and how they weren't ashamed of playing and uh, they wanted to show off their abilities and and they were putting it out there so that was brilliant and a lot of what what I really loved and what we haven't seen so much before was that a lot of these players were encouraging other females to get involved in football so there was this friendship building and this encouraging of girls to uh, get other girls into football whether they were sisters or friends and 
all the football uh, literature in the past, the majority of it was it was dads or brothers getting girls into football. So hopefully we're seeing a shift. And that is where the increase in participation of girls in football is is positive, um, as many other things are positive, that actually that increase in participation, and I know that's what the authorities are hoping for, will have a knock-on effect to the cultural change, but it's just a little bit slower. So where's your next research going then? Where are you going for the future? What do you want to study and what do you want to achieve? Well, I'm in the um, midst of trying to publish for my PhD. So I've got about six or seven papers in my head at the moment. I just need to get out there. Um, I'm also going to uh, write a monograph um, that um, sandwiches my own experiences of playing next to my own research participants. Hopefully that will be a really good project to be finished next year. Uh, But the way I see my research going is more into the family relationship side that we haven't touched upon um, today, but looking specifically at mothers and um, mothers returning or mothers who play football and how that position of mother and footballer um, links and connects in relation to family uh, context, but also uh, being a player and and the self-identity and the football self so I'm hoping to to do a lot around that going forward. Oh that's great um, well it's really great to have talked to you today I've learned so much I've learned all about ethnography well I think I have <laughs> and about salient and continuing cells well I think I have and I'm definitely going to try and put those things into practice even if I just talk to my juniors who I coach about some of these issues and what they think and we might that that just might help um so is there anything else you you'd like to leave us with today to for our listeners many any other comments you'd like to make or any good points you'd like to finish off with just to say thank you so much for listening and I hope you support the rest of the podcast series that what the Wise Network are putting forward and just continue in whatever pocket or um, situational context that you were in to empower girls and women to engage and get involved with sport and sustain them in the sport because it can only ever be a good thing. Yeah, a really great way to finish. So thanks very much, Anya. Thank you, Jackie.